cold out there, man. You know, keeps me awake. Wim Hofen it? Yeah, Wim Wim Hofen. (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) Um, Well, should we get down to business? Yeah, let's do it. All right, sick. Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of Speaking from Water. I have Alex Linus on the line here, and he is maybe, I think, the best free diver in the world currently. I'm going to claim that. <laughs> He's probably not going to claim that, but I've been doing uh, lots of research on, on my man and uh, talk about an inspirational story from start to finish. And I'm just so excited to have you on the line, Alex, uh, from from Bogota to the United States to finding your passion later in life to just then crushing it on the world stage. Um, welcome to Speaking From Water. It's an honor to have you. Man, the pleasure and the honor is all mine, Shauna. It's been uh, a long time following your your athletic endeavors, and unfortunately, we've never been able to kind of go against each other. But uh, it's still like something I'd like to happen. And um, you know, much respect to you for everything that you do, both as a father and a waterman. Uh, we both love the same lifestyle, and it's amazing to be a part of this. Um, Two, I am not one of the best. I am maybe one of the best in the world, but I'm definitely not the best in the world. And there's a, a <laughs> bit of a gap for the next level, just to make that clear. I don't want to pretend to be anything I'm not. Um, I have done pretty well for someone that's a, a beginner, quote unquote, to the free diving, competitive free diving scene. So I did get uh, medals at world championships and set a few continental and national records. And I mean, exceeded my expectations and most people's, I would say everyone's expectations for, um, you know, for free diving in my first season. Um, you know, love being here and chatting with you, man. I'm really pumped about this. Well, look, I want to get down in, in detail on all, all that because <clears throat> I, I've been following you really deeply for about two years now. And just a little backstory on how I came in contact on this earth with Alex. Uh, it was during the height of COVID. I, I wasn't a little backstory on me that a lot of people might not know from this program is I I can I compete with the Wrightsville Beach uh, Ocean Rescue Team and every year I do the tryout and every year I pride myself on doing so and 2020 I wasn't allowed to do the tryout because of COVID <laughs> and I I heard the guy with the best time was this dude Alex who showed up out of nowhere and I, I met you on the uh, south end in your stand and and we got to chatting I was just like whoa and i at the time jeremy owens the late great jeremy owens i called him up i was like man you guys just keep bringing in the heat on the squad like how are you doing it and um alex i i ever since have been have been following you and um just been completely in, impressed with with your whole story um i i want to kind of start first off what are you what are you doing right now what what's what's going on in your world well, at the moment, I'm taking a, a break from freediving because uh, this house that I'm building is taking up all my time. And like I was telling you earlier, this has been a project, a dream of mine to to have a home here that I can come back to. Um, the past three years, since uh, bef- since the beginning of the pandemic, um, and when I started working on the Wakanda Forever movie, uh, I've been homeless. Basically, uh, relationship ended, and I was living with that person. So. Since then, it's, it's kind of unsettling. It's amazing because I've, I've traveled all over the world and seen so many beautiful places, but Wilmington is home to me, and I wanted to come home to something. And 
so this project is, is I've been working on it for a long time, but it's also something that that is important to me to to have a place to feel comfortable to to relax to see my friends in the off season and not having to come into Wilmington and ask to bunk with people or if there's an extra room or pay the exorbitant Airbnb prices. So this has been a long time coming and, and this project could build me a little home is, uh, is what is taking up the majority of my life at this moment. Um, still swimming a little bit. Water is starting to get a little cold in, in Wilmington. So sporadically getting out there and surfing and just enjoying the off season. Uh, soon enough, I'll begin preparation for the next season. Um, first, you know, just general fitness and gym and strength and probably will not get to do pool until beginning of next year and deaf until middle of next year, probably April uh, timeline. So you, when you start free diving, and especially if you go you know, big depths, it takes a toll on your immune system, on on your central nervous system. Like uh, it's, it's pretty taxing and mentally it's very challenging. So most free divers end up taking an off season and this is what's happening now. Taking care of business basically. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. So uh, you you've been all over the world. Let's uh, let's kind of start here though in Wilmington. What is it about Wilmington that makes uh, you so stoked on on being here? Tell us a little bit about that because I, I too have been uh, to a lot of places and I've explored a lot of beaches and uh, I, I keep coming back to the uniqueness of this area we live in and I, I kind of like to hear your perspective on that. I mean, it's going to sound very similar to yours. Uh, you know, for one, there's the people. And, you know, being around here for a long time, uh, forged a lot of friendships and in, in different little groups of things that I enjoy. So I have my running group, my swimming group, my surfing group, my lifeguarding group, my, you know, like all these, my cycling group, my windsurfing group. So when I come home, I have no shortage of things to do. And the people that I've been around always support me and it's so good to see them. So number one for me would be the people. And then very, very close behind is just what this town has to offer. I'm not a big fan of huge cities. And for me, Wilmington is kind of the big, the, the right size where you still have like all the conveniences or most of the conveniences of a big city, but it still has a small town feeling, especially if you've been here for a long time. Although it is growing very rapidly and more important than that is what the water has to offer. Uh, the, this place is surrounded by athletes and watermen and people that do rad stuff. And, and it's for a reason, you know, like the, the ocean here is amazing. You have the intercoastal waterway for fishing and hanging out and boating. You have the Atlantic right there, the Gulf Stream a few miles out, frying pan tower you know, the ecosystems in, in the ocean that we have are very unique and special. And the beach is beautiful. It's, I mean, there was not to love here, man. I just wish there was a little bit more elevation and that would be it. You know, like this would be the perfect place in the world. So, so elevation helps with your training. Well, no, it, not really. I mean, it can, but you know, like if you do elevation training, that only lasts for so long as, as you know, very shortly after you go to sea level, then you lose the benefits of, of the adaptation for, for high elevation, but no, just for cycling, for mountains, for, you know, get a little that, bit more get terrain that extra, and more fun. yeah, the extra power. Yeah. Like, you know, like you go to California and I wouldn't compare California to this, but there's access to mountain biking trails and, 
you know, like right off the coast here, you got to go a long ways to get some, some elevation, some terrain and, and, you know, to go ride mountain bikes or snowboard or whatever it is. <clears throat> Sick. Yeah. It's amazing, amazing place. So I want to take it back to the beginning and I want to go back to Columbia. Your, your dad, from what I understand was a, was a legend in himself. He, he was a really well-renowned surfer in, in his time and in his uh, location in Columbia. And first I'd like to know a little bit more about him and kind of um, what he was all about and then how his influence um, uh, came to you uh, growing up and wh where the, the passion was found. Well, I mean, my dad is, is really truly unique human being in, in, in many, many ways. Um, he was always around the ocean and, and my life is what it is because directly because of influence, his influence since birth, my dad took me to the ocean. He wasn't a surfer, but he was a windsurfer. So mm. he was a competitive windsurfer in Colombia and, and he taught me to windsurf at like age seven. Hence, I'm one of the very few guys that still does that around here. But um, just in general, our life revolved around the ocean for the majority of my childhood. You know, we lived in the coast in Barranquilla, which is the northern part. And then he always made sure, because he wanted the same things I did, that we were coastal until it wasn't an option. But he was just a, an adventurer, or a person that did not go by convention. He forged his own path. He was a badass in every sense of the word. He was a, a waterman before that term was coined. He, you know, he didn't even know, understand what that was, but he did everything related to the water and he passed on that down to me. In addition to man, my dad was a, a, an activist and environmentalist and, you know, he paid the ultimate price for that reason. And, um, you know, much admiration for his bravery, his courage to, to fight against, you know, people that are much, much bigger than, than we can imagine with power and tools and weapons and armies. And, and he never backed down. And I mean, he was really, truly a special man. Even in his 70s, he was still a badass. Like he was still just like, you know, he, he moved around so much and he lived so high in the mountains like to get to to the nearest place you had to walk 30 minutes to get to the grocery store or to not even the grocery store to a store that sold some kind of food so he lived off the land uh self-sufficient and in the middle of, of, of Tidona, which is a very beautiful area um a national park in in colombia and man he was just a, a very very special human being i don't i think they broke the mold when they made him you you tell his story very well with with such passion, and you you were um, a, a young man growing up there for a bit. Am I right? In, in Colombia, I moved to the states when I was sixteen. Okay, so you pretty much your formidable years were spent in South America. Your father exactly. was um, a, an entrepreneur, from what I understand. Is that right? Ah, uh, man, he was a very restless soul that had no fears. So he. He tried a lot of different things um, in Colombia, not so successfully. Uh, at first, when, when I was growing up until probably until we moved to San Andres, my dad worked as an engineer for Intercore, which was, uh, I think at that point was a subsidiary of Exxon and uh, the coal mines in the northern part of the country. And he was working on this four by four 
typical mind thing where, you know, four days on, four days off. And he just hated his work, kind of like me. It's funny, um, you know, he told me so many times that engineering was just not the nice, you know, like, and even though our engineering paths look completely different, it's like, you shouldn't do it, not just, you know, we moved around so much and my life was so unstable uh, with my dad, you know, because uh, very nomadic and, and I just wanted to have a job, like an engineering job that was stable, but it turns out I'm just like my dad and <laughs> ended up hating him just like he did. But after we moved to San Andres, he, he tried his hand at several little businesses. And to be honest with you, none of them prospered. He lost everything that he had made during the engineering years. And uh, that's why we had to move inland to Medellin at that point, because it got pretty rough in San Andres. But he still found the time to, to give you the ocean. And, and how, how, how did he do that? Well, of course. I mean, that's the reason why he wanted to have his own business so he could have control of his of his time. And uh, I mean, I understand how that works now. I didn't quite, you know, when I was young, understand why he couldn't just have a normal job and, you know, and like not take the risk and the stability associated with it. But time he had, you know, he was uh, the, the man of his time and he loved doing all the things that I love doing now. So it wasn't a chore for him to go to the beach and 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 go windsurfing or, or go diving or you know whatever it was is something that he would have done anyways and i just happened to be along with him and san andres that, that was the to me it was the most wonderful time in my childhood it's such a special tiny tiny little island it's like if you put carolina beach in the middle of the caribbean and then the closest land mass is uh 80 miles away or 100 miles away so which is Nicaragua. It's, it's like a, its own little bubble, but at that point it was a very innocent island. Like I could hit, hitchhike anywhere. I could walk around and ride my bike, you know, around the island, get in trouble into, you know, naughty things without getting into too much of the bad trouble, you know? So it's beautiful. The ocean is crystal clear. And yeah, we spent a lot of time definitely enjoying the ocean. And this is where you found <clears throat> that you were really good at diving. Kind of, yeah. Uh, I had a group of windsurfing buddies. And um, I remember this very specifically. We would have breathful contests in the pool. And I would always be able to to beat them. And, and by a large margin when I was a kid. And I was able to, you know, probably dive down like 30, 40 feet. By the time I was like eight, nine years old without, you know, like get to the bottom and grab sand with no fence and just, you know, do my mess down there. And which was, you know, a lot of adults couldn't even do that. And, and that, that came pretty easy to me. Um, even, even before then, when, when I would go on vacation to see my grandmother in the mainland, we'd have like, you know, like contests who could do the most laps underwater, not in a, in a, you know, like a 25 meter pool or anything, just in like the little the complex pool, you know, touching walls and pushing back and forth. And I was always able to do more than, than anybody. Everybody was like, Whoa, what's going on? And I never, you know, didn't know why or how just maybe a tolerated pain. And I wasn't around very fit people or who knows. <laughs> and so you moved to Medellin and eventually to North Carolina. And these, th this time was spent not at the coast anymore. How, how did that affect your, um, your state of mind? Well, you know, like all this moving around, you know, you build uh, mechanisms to cope with it and, you know, you, you find how to get 
you know, how to make friends quickly, how to find outlets. For me, I was a very hyperactive kid. I was never into like none of the, the bad, bad stuff, but I was definitely out of control doing naughty kid things. And if I didn't have like an outlet to, to kind of keep me at bay, then I would just do even more naughty things. So at that point, uh, I started riding bikes. So BMX, when I was in Medellin, BMX became my thing for a little while uh, until we moved uh, to North Carolina. But there was a time, like, when we moved from San Andreas, that was rough, man. Uh, it ended not very good for my dad there. So we moved to Medellin because that's where my family was from. My grandmother was there, and my great-grandmother had a a big, like, a mountain compound that we could use to live there while my dad got settled. And even then, meanwhile, at first, I didn't go to Medellin. At first, I went to Barranquilla to stay with my great-uncle that kind of help race me since i mean i was very close with him then i'm reunited with my dad and then my dad went to north carolina and before going to north carolina before leaving the country i had to get a permit from my mother to leave the country which was not possible because my mom was she was uh i mean she had men mental health and drug issues so i had to stay behind and try to find a way to to get uh, my mom to clear legally insane so my dad could be the only person that could give me the, so my dad wouldn't have to have my mother's authorization to leave the country since I was a minor. So I lived basically after San Andreas, I lived like a year in Barranquilla, about two years in Medellin, and then another eight or eight months to a year in Barranquilla again before leaving to meet my dad. Sounds very stressful. You you have a hallmark in your history of handling stress, though it seems very well. Um, on a macro level, how how is is this a, a seeming thing, or do you do you have uh, what is your mechanism, and does it relate at all to your ability to um, uh, stay underwater for a long time? I mean, it's an interesting question, and and I've asked myself those things. I, I notice sometimes when I'm in the face of of uh, adversity. I take it on as a challenge and, and this happens so many times. I think I developed that as a coping mechanism without understanding why, like, you know, we have childhood trauma and, and things that happen and, and then your body or mind chooses to go a certain path. And now it's always, uh, you know, mentally strong and, and, and chose to react as, as seeing things as a challenge and, and just overcoming them. It wasn't fun. It wasn't like, yay, I'm going to go do this. It's just like, I'm going to, I have no choice but to overcome this. Uh, other times has been like the typical stubborn thing that like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to prove them wrong or, okay, so this is how it's going to be. I'm going to do this. And it, it's great to cope with those things, but it doesn't, it, you know, like all those traumas create a personality that has impacted me that causes me issues and challenges in relationships sometimes because I can be so headstrong and, and motivated by challenges and pushing myself. Um, of course, that has a huge advantage when it comes to to sports and freediving and, and all these other things. As you know, like if you're not willing to suffer, you're not you're not gonna get better. You're not gonna be able to to rise to the challenge, and and that's something that I guess I've learned to do is, is suffer and and rise to the challenge. And guys, listening, like this isn't where the suffering ends. Let's let's go on to, uh, um, to North Carolina. You you 
eventually meet up with your dad and you then go and and uh go to college at cape fear right yeah uh first uh so which i'm sure we'll talk about this uh but i couldn't go to to a four-year university because of my legal status so right. at that point when we Let, migrated let's go there. here we were yeah so you know we left we left Colombia because of the both economically and and just the way that things were in Colombia was pretty dangerous. It wasn't a, a good environment for me, for my dad. I mean, this was right around when Pablo Escobar was, you know, he'd just been murdered and there was like still leftover cartel fights and it was a dangerous place to be and not much opportunity. My dad was not able to get any more engineering jobs. So we decided to come here. Um, we came here illegally with a, with a tourist visa and, um, then stayed here for a couple of years, you know, back then immigration law, it was still there. It's it not very friendly, but the enforcement was lagging, um, like it is now you could get away with, with many things So you could get a driver's license. You could still go to high school, like all those things, at least in North Carolina, you were able to do as an illegal immigrant. Um, so for that period of time, everything was good. Um, I was actually living in Monroe, North Carolina with my dad. And um, my dad moved to Wilmington when Fran and Bertha, uh, you know, rolled through and leveled Rysel Beach. He was a, a roofer, so he quit his job and started his own roofing company. And I stayed behind in Monroe. Um, my senior year, me and my buddy decided to go on a graduation trip. We just drove up the East Coast on a, you know, kind of stopped at Hatteras and New York City and Philadelphia and just, you know, kind of never been, never done that. So we went all the way to Niagara Falls. And when we were in Niagara Falls, my buddy was like, let's go to Canada. And, you know, I'm, I'm a moron at age 16, as most of us are. And I was like, well, what does it take to go to, to Canada? And at that point, border control was not what it is now. It's like, I, I just called and they're like, oh, you just need your driver's license. And that's it. It's like, well, shit, I got one of those. So let's go. So we went to Canada just because I was 19 and I could buy drinks. <laughs> it's illegal drinking age was 19. And uh, I remember this. I went there, got a, a one liter of cider, hard cider. We drank it and then got a tummy ache and then got drunk from just that. We was walking back to the border. And, you know, they asked me all the immigration questions, which I don't remember ever. I don't know what they were, but he asked me what citizenship I was. And I said, U.S., which is not true. And um, and then basically I got busted at the border for trying to enter the U.S. illegally and overstaying it before with my um, my tourist visa. So that prompted me applying for political asylum because uh, the reasons what I told you I had, you know, I had relatives in Colombia that were my uncle, the one that I stayed with in Barranquilla was, um, was a very important politician and governor and mayor and, and they tried to kill him and it was threats. He had bodyguards. So we just pursued that route because the options were, um, to either be deported or to apply for political asylum. So, um, during that time I was sent to immigration jail for about a month and I was it's, it was a very traumatic experience. I was, I always feel like I've been more of a kid than my age shows, <laughs> I guess, even to this point. And 
I can honestly say that at that age, I was a freaking child. And, you know, I was in jail with, with, um, with fortunately with, with good people that were in just awful circumstances. It's not the same as going to prison or to county jail. It's like a specific for immigrants. And most of the people that, that come to the U.S. are, you know, fleeing something or looking for better opportunity. And, and the majority are good people that just happen to be in bad circumstances. So it wasn't like a gnarly experience in that sense. It's just being incarcerated at age 19, not knowing whether you'd be able to stay in the U.S. where now all your life was, your dad was, and, you know, not having a mom that he was all I had in this life, you know. Not, I don't have any siblings, and, and you know, it's like, it was just really, really rough. I remember I cried every night. There were some really nice people in there that helped me get through it. And, and yeah, from that, I applied for political asylum. And that was, uh, I was very fortunate they let me out on parole, which doesn't happen much to, to immigrants. Uh, I had friends that were, um, since I was from Monroe and Jesse Helms, Senator Jesse Helms was from Monroe. They called in favors and I was able to, to um to get released on parole and then two or two and a half years later i um i was granted political asylum um, the problem is that when i was granted political asylum uh since i told the immigration border guy that i was a u.s citizen that itself is a crime so falsely claiming to be a u.s citizen permanently bars you from adjusting to u.s citizenship or residency at that point so for 20 years or so, I was stuck in political asylum. And if you're living in the US, it's not that difficult. You know, you don't need a work permit. You're, you're still able to, you have like a indefinite work permit, basically. Um, you're able to attend university and, you know, take advantage of government programs and loans and stuff like that. It's just the part when you want to leave the country gets extremely difficult um because you can't travel with your colombian passport and you don't have a u.s passport so i mean that presented a whole lot of different challenges and i was so anxious to see the world and had to give up many opportunities that came my way because of just couldn't get the the travel document in, in time and it's not like it was valid for a long period of time it's only valid for a year and most countries want you to have six months of validity on your travel documents so you have like a six-month travel window it could take anywhere between four and eight months to get the document. It was a nightmare for a long time to to be able to leave the country. So I, I feel like that's one of the reasons also why I never I didn't get the chance to do the the freediving thing um, before. It'd been a dream of mine for over a decade to pursue competitive freediving. You know, you can't do it in North Carolina. It's not possible because we don't have the conditions for depth. But yeah, and. And you, you, it sounds from the story that I understand you, you were then ready for some sort of security with professionalism, and you went on to to get your uh, engineer engineering degree from from state NC State. Do I have that right? That is correct. Yeah. And, so I, I went to Kefir because I couldn't because of my immigration status I could not um, go to a four year college to a university because then they would they checked immigration you had to be a permanent resident. Um, so once I got, uh, was awarded political asylum, I was able to go to NC state cause, uh, you know, I'm legally in the U S with political asylum status. Um, during that time, my dad was, uh, deported 
So we got separated again. So my senior year in college, um, my dad got deported to Columbia. And that itself is a whole nother story. My dad could write a book. It'd be a really interesting one. Uh, I always told him to, but he was more interested in writing about politics than he was about his life. But he, that man has lived a lot. <laughs> so he, he was actually in, he lost everything um, because of his deportation. deportation. Um, they, it was for possession of a firearm. And even though the firearm was not purchased illegally, he actually purchased it with a sheriff's document. My dad was an illegal immigrant and federal law dictates that an illegal immigrant, despite on how he obtained the weapon, cannot possess a, a firearm. So he got thrown in jail for a year and deported immediately after. And, you know, as people don't realize how tough uh, the legal system can be. Um, you know, it's, it's most of the time, justice is not a matter of what's right or wrong. It's a matter of how much funds you have to be able to defend yourself, to pay for the right attorney, to fight whatever charges there are, to, to navigate the legal system so that you can come out on top. And, and, you know, my dad, I was in charge of all that. So I had to liquidate my dad's assets. I had to, you know, be... Uh, try to find an attorney that we could afford, try to ask money from relatives to pay the attorney. My dad lost his roofing company immediately. Uh, the newspaper would try to keep uh, surviving with that didn't work out. And um, yeah, it was just, it was really, 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 really tough, man, really challenging. And, and that's just like the logistical part of it. The emotional part of it was devastating. And that separated me and my dad for over a decade, um, much over a decade, probably 15, 16 years. I didn't get to see my dad because having political asylum means I cannot go to the country I'm claiming political asylum from. And my dad could not come to the U.S. Um, until, I mean, ever. He was deported. So I think that's like a 25-year ban. And he wasn't interested in coming to this country because he felt he was treated so unfairly. It's not like my dad was doing bad stuff. He was... You know, community leader, a business owner, just he was vocal about immigration issues and um, and then made some choices, uh, relationship choices that ended up affecting him. It was basically his ex was made up some BS charges so they could investigate him. And um, and that's what prompted immigration to get involved. Horrible. Yeah. And. Uh, what what year is this? Uh, it was 2003, I want to say, because I graduated from engineering school in 2003. That's when he and, was deported. He, it probably happened in 2002, and he was in jail for a year. And and you just graduated. You're you're now ready to to find your job that's going to be secure and give you um, financial um, stability in your life. You move mm -hmm. to the West Coast. That's correct. Uh, Los Angeles or Long Beach. Free free diving is not even on the radar right now. It, it's just like this let's moment, get the no. work. Let's get the work. Let's let's get get security. Yeah, at that point, you know, bikes, snowboarding, and and um, and windsurfing were kind of what what I like to do. Uh, free diving wasn't a thing yet, and 
you know, there's, there's good mountains around California. I always was curious about it. Um, and then there was a windsurfing scene. I hadn't actually windsurfed in a long time then, but I was a little bit excited about it. And yeah, like, you know, it's, it's California, you got to see it. I honestly didn't enjoy my time in California as much as I should have. It was hard to make friends in the industry that I was, uh, you know, I was working as a plant engineer. So the people you surround yourself with are just not into the, the things. And that's why I go back to like, what I like about Wilmington so much is the people, because they're so easy to find people that have things in common with you that want to get rad. And, and over there, I'm sure there were, but they weren't where I was. <laughs> you know, so, uh, I, when I was there, I was homesick. I, I really wanted to, all my friends were like buying houses and, and going on surf trips and, you know, like having fun and starting to make money. And, and I was there and I was looking, I mean, now I wish I had bought, but looking at house prices there, I was like, oh my God. And I'll never own a house here. And if I'd known then what I know now, then it would have been a different story. But yeah, it was, uh, it just seemed, I just missed being here. And I, I didn't, like I said, I don't like big cities. How long did you last? About two years, two and a half years. And what yeah, made then, you say, "Hey, this, I'm, I'm going back. I'm going back to what I love." <laughs> well, we've been looking uh, for a way to go back, and you know, I was actually married at that point, and she was from North Carolina, so she wanted to come back as well. And we just missed her friends and her family, and and the support, and we wanted to own a house and and do that thing, and and yeah, just miss missed everything from from the east coast and i was in having you know, I, I snowboarded a lot when i was in california and windsurfed a bit but other than that like that was it man and sometimes i would go to the mountain by myself because i didn't really have like a bunch of bros to go snowboarding with you know most of the time I was by myself so i just yeah just kind of miss being here in a smaller town where you knew people where people want to do the same things you wanted to do so you come back and what was the the precipice moment of of you re rekindling your your love for free diving well i mean honestly didn't even know what free diving was i, I take that back i had watched the the grand blue or the the big blue and when i was young kid in columbia and i knew that that existed but i thought that was like a stunt and riding the sled and that just seemed crazy and i and I didn't like, couldn't relate to the numbers that they were because of the meters. And I didn't understand it. I didn't even follow it enough to know. I'm, I just know it looked like, wow, that was pretty crazy. But when I came back, um, you know, I wanted to go spearfishing. And, and I had heard some buddies that have been spearfishing. And a friend of mine was actually um, dating the sister of the guy that owned the Omer, uh, the distribution for Omer products here in Wilmington. And, and before that, like I had started to see, like spearfishing was starting to get a little bit, not popular. It was very French, but I saw some pictures of people shooting mahi. It was actually my buddy, Ryan McKinnis that took that picture. And, and I was like, man, I, I really want to do that. And then I got more curious and bought some equipment from, from my buddy, Mark, that now he owns uh, Maverick American or Maverick America. Um, but back then he distributed Omer products. So bought those guns and started going to the jetty. I was living in the South end, not too far from where you used to live on uh, no water doubt. street. Yeah. 
and uh and we had like a little boat uh we had a, a lift and I had a little pioneer boat, man. And I was burning that jetty up like four or five times a week, man. Just like going as much as possible and getting super stoked in it. And the, you know, what I had started talking, I think, well, I used to take Tara that worked at a uh, tower seven and, you know, like everybody knew everybody in Riceville beach. So she put me in touch with Ryan uh, and, you know, we started like becoming friends and, and I just started asking around about what to do next. I wanted to get better. I wanted to go out offshore. I don't want to just be stuck in the jetty forever. And someone suggested to take a class. So that point I was in between jobs, but, uh, and there was only two instructors in the U S that taught free diving courses. It was Martin Stepanek and Kirk crack, or if there was more, I didn't know about him. So those were two options and they were both in Florida at that moment, at that point. So I just went and uh, they, you know, I went straight to a level two because I wanted to get the most that I could and, you know, like traveling to Florida, logistics, getting there where you're kind of in between jobs and broke is, is a big part of the, co the cost of it. So I like even got on a payment plan to pay for my freediving course and paid it off before I went. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to take the class with Martin Stepanek, uh, and at that point he was, he was it. He was the baddest motherfucker alive. He was 13th time world record holder. And he held, I think at that point he had all the world records with the deepest man alive with, you know, without assistance and, you know, taking that class changed my life. Um, it, it made me realize kind of, how how much potential it unlocked just in such a sh short period of time and even though then i i thought people that did free diving were crazy because I and mean, i'm in for death for competition because i looked at, at martin's numbers and i was just so pumped to get to 100 feet and then uh, this guy going like 420 feet i was like dude i'm dying to get to 100 and i wouldn't even be a quarter of the way there, you know, like, how is this possible? It's not within me, you know, like this doesn't, this can't be done. And, but I was still really stoked to, you know, to progress so quickly from going to the jetty at 30, 40 feet, like struggling to get into a hundred feet and seeing that that was possible. Like the first time I ever did a static breath hold was like five minutes and 20 seconds. And, and I was better than everybody in the class. And, and it just like started to be like, oh man, this is really interesting. I want this to be a big part of my life. Maybe I can, you know, do something with it. And I've just became obsessed with it, became an instructor within a year and then started teaching for the next decade and had some opportunities to travel with free diving. Um, but obviously they were limited by my immigration status. So I was exposed to competitive free diving, but I couldn't do it because finances were, uh, you know, training, immigration status, all those other factors. So what year was the time when you first took this class? 2009, I want to say nine or eight. Okay. And, and then you, you, you come back to Wilmington and then when was it that you started going to Puerto Rico? Uh, that was shortly after, I think 2000 and a year or two after me and my buddy, Joe, started teaching uh, the Waterman Survival Curriculum came out maybe a year or two after we um, we became instructors. So we were the first to get certified as Waterman Survival Instructors. 
And we just went in Puerto Rico. Joe had been going to Puerto Rico for uh, since he was a kid. And we started teaching there um, in probably 2010 or 11. And, and that's when you're like, oh, wait, I can actually make money from this. This can be a professional job. Puerto Rico's in America. I can I can go there, come back to mainland. Well, at that point, I mean, honestly, free diving has never been a money grab for me. It's been the opposite. It's been um, a gigantic hole where you throw money at and doesn't get filled up. Um, and even, you know, if you, if you go to Puerto Rico to teach a class, I'd be lucky to break even. Um, you know, we got the expenses of traveling there, of lodging, car rentals, you know, food, all, all the things that, you know, it be, it just never got to be very profitable, but it, I was passionate about it. I, I enjoyed teaching. I love being in the water. I like traveling. Puerto Rico is still, I think it's my favorite place in the world. I don't know. Maybe there's another one there that I, that I like, but it, I found like Puerto Rico to be somewhat similar to Rysel Beach as far as the people that were interested in doing all the same fun things that I wanted to do. So it was not hard to jump to the biking scene, jump into the windsurfing scene, into the surf scene, the diving scene. Like, and, and I made some friendships through the classes that allowed me to make contacts and immediately have friends, you know, teaching there for 10 years, you meet a lot of people, a lot of people go through your courses and, you build a community and, and I'm fortunate enough to have made some great friendships from that. Can you tell us a little, a little bit about the water in Puerto Rico and what that's like? Puerto Rico to me is like a, a cheaper Hawaii or a closer Hawaii or a not so fancy Hawaii. It's, it offers so much, man. The, you know, the, the waves are incredible. Uh, you know, you have a big, obviously there's, it's no jaws, but Tres Palmas is a, you know, a, the biggest wave in the Caribbean and it's not just anything to be like, yeah, Caribbean, whatever, you know, that thing can break 45 feet. Um, but in addition to that, you just have consistent swell in the winter. You have a lot of water, a lot of time to surf really, really nice waves. Um, the, the edge, the ledge is like not even a mile away from the coastline. So if you want deep water, you can have it. If you want reef, it's right there. The wind, you have consistent trade winds with waves. So the wave sailing for windsurfing is epic. It's, it's, it's actually insane as far as wave sailing goes. And some spots are, I mean, it's just a beautiful place, man. It's jungle, there's mountains, there's coffee, there's cycling, there's swimming. The, I mean, it's just awesome. The water is like, you can go to places, uh, offshore to go spearfishing. The spearfishing is great. Um, there's, you know, there's so, it just has so much to offer. And, and I've only like, I've been one of those people, unfortunately, and it's my fault that I, when I go to Puerto Rico, I typically just stay between San Juan and Rincon. So I haven't really seen the rest of the island. And I can, I'm, I'm been confined most of the time, 90% of the time between Aguadilla and Rincon. And I just love just that little area. I can only imagine what the rest of the island has to offer. While, while we're on the subject of uh, land, beauty, and aesthetics of water, I've seen just incredible photos of you in in deep, deep water that's just so crystal clear. And I would like for you to kind of let us know from your opinion, what what is the one spot that you've been in, in your life where you're like, 
take me back there. That water was just the best water I've ever seen. And can you describe well, that? This is a, it's a funny or interesting question because in freediving, one of the things you don't get to enjoy much is the water. And I mean, like visually, you know, like it's, it's a very inward journey. So what, in most of the time we, we don't have goggles or if we do have goggles they're flooded with water. So like steam things, it's just, a, it's a practical matter. It's not a, a matter of enjoying the beauty. Like the beauty of free diving for death is all inwards. And even though I get the pictures because everybody wants to, and you can tell what the conditions look like on the surface, as far as when you're deep, you're so focused on, on other things that, you know, yes, you can tell what the, you can tell what the water quality looks like when it's bad more so than when it's good, you know? And, but I, I am fortunate to have been to a lot of different places and they all have so many different things to offer. It's hard to, to pinpoint one, cause you know, one has more beautiful like visibility or the other one has better, you know, inland stuff. One is jungly, the other one is a desert, you know, one has very nice access, one temperatures colder the other one's warmer one has thermoclines one doesn't one's dark one's you know it's just so many factors that it's, it's really hard to pick a place um that has it you know that that beats everyone outright it just kind of depends on, on what you want I, I will say that one of the things that i that i haven't found yet is a place where i can not just free dive but free dive and do all the other things that i enjoy and that has been honestly, one of the most challenging things of, of being a professional in the sport is, is giving up surfing, is giving up uh, wind sports, is giving up cycling. It's, I mean, not to mention traveling with that stuff would be pretty difficult, but it's, uh, I have, that would be the place that I, if I can find death in Puerto Rico without current, then I, I would just, I would settle up, you know, I'll just be there all the time. So, so you're just laying a bunch of things on me that as a, a person who doesn't free dive, didn't even think about like the goggles, the pressure you can't see. So you want water in there. Is that, am I reading that right? Yeah. So for me, I, I wear goggles. This is free diving is so weird. It's, it's because just water flow that like we're very sensitive and we have receptors in the area near our orbital sockets in our eyes and they're very sensitive. And for some people it actually can won't let you it'll make more difficult to relax which equalization is dependent on relaxation 100 percent. so and and not just i mean if you're diving 100 feet yeah or 30 meters you can you can bs your way through equalization once you go past like you know 200 feet 150 feet you have to be extremely relaxed a not to injure yourself but b to be able to maintain the air volume in your in your cheeks to be able to, to equalize or to reverse packet to equalize. And the, you know, the, the goggles are just to cover the water flow of your eyelashes and these nerves that are in your eye. And it makes it easy to relax. For me, a lot of people don't wear anything, but they are filled with water because like you said, they can't, if you, if I was to wear swimming goggles and took them to 300 feet, they will suck the eyeballs out of my, eye sockets just to fill the the void you know it creates a vacuum literally it's like you put a super strong vacuum hose to your eyeballs 
So they're, they're just fluid, filled with fluid. You can see somewhat, um, you get adjusted to seeing through the water, but it's just, uh, yeah, it's mostly for comfort. All right. You, you hold multiple Colombian records. You're, you just got silver, as I understand in, in the, in the world. Um, take us through a dive <laughs> of, of that magnitude. Uh, what what leads up to the preparation as far as uh, i don't like maybe the, the hours before the day before and then kind yeah. of describe the, like what it is when you're down there like what's going through your head how how is your body feeling and then what's the um when you reach the the point where you turn how how do you know that that's that's where you need to turn it's because one from from my studies before we did this interview, there's there's something where I believe fifty people die a year doing free diving. That's what that's what I read, and it's it's so dangerous because you get so relaxed from what I understand that you just want to keep keep doing it. It's like it feels good. So I want to I want to know from your perspective what it what this is. Let, let me pin the safety uh, subject for for after I'll do this because uh, that this like uh, taking you through a dive is probably going to be a, a time consuming endeavor and I'll forget Let's, to talk uh, about okay. safety. All right, we'll go to safety in a I second. Which I feel is really important. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, on a typical, say if we'll go through a competition day, um, free diving is the most emotionally charged and mentally challenging uh, sport that, that I can imagine by far. It's not like uh, when you and I line up for uh for a race for say the tryouts like we're pumped we're hyped we're we're nervous in a good way and we use that energy to bust out and do our thing you know that's not it's super counterproductive in in free diving so you have to maintain a calm demeanor you have to be focused you have to be relaxed and that itself can be very stressful like imagine if any thoughts that enter your mind take you down a rabbit hole, stress you out, make you nervous, all stuff. So you got to block those. And it's really, really hard work. And honestly, the anxiety for me and for a lot of people begins the night before knowing that you have a, a big dive. Oftentimes it's a personal best or it's the, a dive that's going to be challenging that you only don't, you know, once or twice, or it's your personal best for the season, which sometimes we have to start fresh from, you know, every season, not fresh from, from scratch, but we are not where we left off. So the night before, you know, you try to take it easy, relax, have a light night, dinner, sleep is very crucial if you can make it, if you don't let anxiety get the best of you. Um, in the morning, you wake up and a lot of free divers have different routines. They mostly involve stretching uh, both uh, your muscles, but also importantly, your your respiratory muscles, your diaphragm, your intercostal muscles, and get all that prepped up for a dive. Um, then there's meditation and me and a lot of people struggle with equalization. So we'll do some equalization exercises to kind of, you know, loosen up the ears. And so that routine, you know, lasts about hour, hour and a half, you know, first thing I'll wake up is have something in my stomach and then start, you know, that process of the routines. Cause you don't want to go to the, to the dive line with a bloated belly or too much food but you also don't want to go there too hungry. So those are, it's almost it's like racing in other sports. You got to time your meals to what, you know, what your metabolism can handle. Um, 
so after you know you do all your stretching and relaxing and you know your meditation you'll head to the competition side oftentimes they'll have boats that take you to the line uh in the case of vertical blue you just swim out or a couple of spots you swim out to the competition line uh, in you're allowed to warm up uh, either 30 or 40 minutes before your dive time. So what I, I like to get there to have as much time as possible to never be rushed. For me, it's, it's very important that I don't get rushed because uh, when, I'm, when I'm overwhelmed or when I have too many things going on is when things tend to go, when I get more nervous. And so I want to take my time doing everything. I choose to do a warm-up. Some people choose not to warm up. My warm-up consists of uh, I go down to about 15 meters, meters, and I do a static breath hold. 15 meters, about 48, 50 feet, and I do a, a static breath hold there for about two minutes and come up. Um, there's different schools of thought and how long your warm-up should be. Uh, there, you don't want to, or it's my opinion that you don't want to exert yourself too much before your big dive. So, two minutes is uh, comfortable enough to kick in the mammalian dive reflex and to you know kind of get you adjusted to the water and you know feeling good after that i'll take a little bit of a break surface break breathe up relax some more and then i'll do another dive that will just be a, what we call frc which is basically an exhale dive and uh and i'll test my equalization by putting air in my cheek and seeing how far i can go down with uh, exhale lungs and uh, and kind of test things out and and just get a because that's basically the same thing that happens during the dive, just in a compressed time. So I'll do that, then I'll head to the platform or the buoy or whatever, and just chill. If it's the platform, or lay down, uh, try to get in the shade, uh, not be uncomfortable, not sweat, not get too cold. So manage your body temperature as well as you can and your comfort and just relax and try to stay focused without getting letting nerves get to you and that can be a very challenging thing it's uh you know to not think about the dive um about 10 minutes before the my official top i get in the water i wet my face and then i start um i have a conversation I have a conversation with my dad because I dedicate every dive to him. And um, then I just continue through my, you know, like maybe do some visualization. Um, I do that in the platform as well, just to kind of go through the things that I may have be sticky or having issues with in the, in the training or, you know, like things that I need to remember from the previous dive. And then I just try to let everything go about five minutes from my official top, I will try to go to the line. Sometimes I'll allow it. Sometimes it won't be until three minutes. And then you go into a, a type of meditation and breathing, um, <clears throat> exerting the least amount of energy and until your dive. About <clears throat> 30 seconds before the dive, uh, I'll begin my, I'll take my last breath and begin my packing. And packing is um, this is method that we use to get more air into our lungs. So I'll take my big breath and then I'll top it off with this packs. Uh, depending on which discipline I'm doing, I do anywhere between 30 and 40 packs when I'm flexible enough. Because this is something that you have to work up to. You can injure yourself. I probably even now if I try to do 40 packs, 
it wouldn't be a good idea. Um, so then I'll take, uh, I'll start my dive. At the beginning of the dive, I try to maintain, relax. It's, it's very fortunate, uh, you know, you and I come from a swimming background and we understand how important it is to be efficient in the water. And that's one of the advantages that I have in free diving is that I can exert myself not too much and still make ground. So I try to control my strokes, make sure that I'm not generating tension and take my time and be as efficient as possible. If this is, uh, for example, a no fin dive, I'll take, I'll set my alarms um, for about uh, 12, 13 meters and I'll take a mouthfeel. Mouthfeel is just putting it in your mouth like, so I'll do one of those. Then I'll take a stroke and then I'll top off one more time because, you know, the, the mouthfeel gets smaller. So I'll top up again. And then depending on where I am, I might take a kick or a full stroke. And then I'll take it one more time, a quick top off. And then after that, I do nothing. I have some straps like uh, that I go right by my, my thigh, like by my crotch. And I hook my thumbs in there just a little bit more streamlined and relaxed. And I just, I keep my eyes open and keep my attention on the line because what can happen oftentimes is, you know, you close, if you close your eyes, you, you don't, you have a sensation of movement, but you don't know which direction. So you can start to veer away from the line or you can free fall like this where it's lower or have like a weird body position. So one of the things that helps me maintain a good body position is to be really close to the line, have the line in sight. Um, I will start counting. So depending on the dive, I know roughly how much time it takes me to get to the bottom from my last charge. Once I do my last charge, I'll start counting. And that also, it, it does many things. For one, it keeps my, my brain occupied in the medial task that doesn't consume too much oxygen. It also allows me to know whereabouts I'm in the dive, um, you know, seconds equal meters kind of deal. And then it, and now it'll prepare me for when I'm getting to the end to touch down. Um, I also have another alarm that will go off about, depending on the depth, maybe seven to 10 meters, oh no, seven to five meters before the plate to let me know that the plate is coming. And so I can pay attention because now you have to do things a little bit different. Um, you have to look out for the candy cane so you can turn around and grab the tag. At this moment, and in, in during this dive, all I'm focused on and after my last charge, because I have difficulties with equalization, is basically staying relaxed and managing the mouth, the air that's in my cheeks. So that's the air that you have to use to equalize. Um, we, going back to pressure, your lungs get compressed so much, they get, they get compressed smaller than you can physically make them. So you cannot get any more air out of your lungs as you're descending. So that's why the air has to stay in your cheeks. Um, when I get to the plate, I grab the tag. I use the tags are made of Velcro, the female Velcro, and I have like a male Velcro on my suit. So I just slap the tag on the Velcro and then I begin my ascent. Um, I'll take a, it's beneficial to take a pull to kind of, uh, when you, you know, to switch your momentum from going downwards to going upwards. But, and this is what happened in my last dive where I was going for a continental record and the US national record. There's a, a zone that's called a candy cane that's marked. And, you know, you don't have mass, so you're not seeing very clearly. I grabbed like this much, a couple inches above the candy cane. 
and disqualify my dive. But it does help. Yeah, it does help to grab the line and pull. So I'll take a pull from the line and then I'll begin swimming up. Um, I try to swim a little bit stronger than I do on the way down, but very controlled. I never, I never sprint. I never, it's, it's almost like a cool down swim. About that speed is what I would describe when I'm swimming up. Um, <clears throat> I'll count my strokes as well, just to give me a reference to where I am and, or my kicks, depending on which discipline I'm doing. And, you know, I know roughly if I'm doing, say, a, a 75 meter dive, it will take about 26 strokes. And I know that roughly I should see the first safety if he's at 30 meters, about 17 strokes. So I know, and I also have alarms that tell me every 10 meters where I am. And, uh, and I find it useful because people, some people uh, manage, like they approach dives differently. Some people don't want to know anything. Uh, I, um, I like to have information because it distracts me and it also kind of helps me know where I am. So yeah, I know that after certain strokes, I'm supposed to be here, uh, this amount of strokes, I'm supposed to be here, this amount of strokes, I'm supposed to be there and try to focus on technique and make sure that I'm, you know, I'm not sliding elbows or, you know, opening my legs too much or, you know, trying to keep your mind focused on a task is helpful. Then you see the safety, the first safety in a competition is typically around 30 meters, sometimes 40, and you'll start swimming. You know, I'll try to keep them in sight. This is about when you start having contractions and it gets uncomfortable. So you're having to manage these contractions and keep swimming. Um, you may get a little bit more hypoxic and you can start feeling it at that point, the, a little bit of lactic. It doesn't affect me too much, but then towards the, then you get the next safety and the last safety and that those last five meters are very crucial. About the 10 meter mark, when I see the last safety, I'll take one more stroke and reposition my hands, remove the nose clip, reach up for the line. So you want to have, you want to be high on the line, your arm high on the line. So if it's dipping, you're not going underwater. And um, then I'll take my recovery breaths. But at that point, you've gone, you've put your body through a lot. So it's easier said than, said than done. When you're hypoxic, um, this, this task, um, you're confused. So it, it's like you have to practice doing them over and over. And sometimes you make mistakes. Sometimes I forget to exhale before the surface which can cause a hypoxic uh, scenario at the surface. Sometimes I won't remove my nose clip. Other times it's like, there's a lot going on in your mind. Um, a lot of people ask me, when does it feel, when do you start feel the dive? Like the, the consequence of the dive or when do you start being like, okay, so when I arrive at the plate, I should be feeling really good. I should not have any discomfort. And typically that's the case. It takes about, 20, 30 meters from the bottom before I start feeling the discomfort and start kind of telling how the dive is going. And I'll start having contractions shortly after that. And depending on how long, how strong those are, you can kind of tell how your dive is doing. Um, I try to ignore them anyways and just continue to the surface. At the surface, once you, you know, you do your, your, um, your recovery breaths, then you have to give the surface protocol and if you have the tag and then this should give you a white card. If not, then you get a yellow or a red card.
So when you're, when you breach the surface and you've just done like your personal best, it's, it's the, it's the gold. Like what, what is, what's that feeling like? Oh, it's incredible, man. Uh, so much work is put into a season of diving and, and so many variables and unknowns uh, you go through even during the dive, not just through a season, but during a particular dive, when you're doing PB territory, it's always, sorry, Sean, sorry, like it's always very nerving to, you know, to not know because you never know in free diving. That's one of the, such a mentally uh, taxing sport. It's like, Within any given day, you might be 10% of your baseline performance. You could be 10% better, you could be 10, 15, 20% worse. And sometimes you have no idea why. So making a dive, especially if it's a significant dive, a competition dive, a record dive, is yeah, man, it's just heaven. <laughs> it's amazing. You feel so great. It's you know, it's it's a very, very good feeling of accomplishment and reward. It's, it's very special. Well, thank you for describing all that, and and congratulations, really, on on your 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 successes and your most recent successes. And um, I, you mentioned the safety there, and I was I was shocked to take note that when you're down there at the plate, you're by yourself. There's no one yeah. like, hey. Are like checking on you. So the checking on is, is is as you're ascending. Exactly. Well, the hypoxic incidents happen. Ninety nine percent of them happen within that thirty meter and the surface. So risking another diver to go down deeper, you're basically having two free divers double the risk. And so the safeties are within that danger zone. And actually, ninety percent or probably more of those incidents happen within the last ten meters. In the case of something does happen at the bottom in the competition setting and you have a counter ballast and you're attached to the rope itself by a carabiner and a lanyard. So if something happens, they release a heavier plate, a heavier weight on the opposite side of the line and through the pulleys, it brings the entire plate up and the diver with it as well. Uh, the Having someone at the bottom of the plate is, is impossible logistically. Uh, it'd be a technical scuba dive where the amount of time that they could be there would be very insignificant and it's super dangerous and they would not be able to do anything. They would just be like, oh, he's here. I can't, they can't transport you up. You know, it takes a long time to go, hey, go? from. Oh, hi. <laughs> hey. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so it's. You know, logistically, it's impossible to safety in scuba. It's good to take pictures with it and and document and 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 watch, but you know, at those depths, you can't really scuba dive safely. Got you. Uh, let's um, let let's talk about then. How do you know from from doing this so often where you you're in a danger zone? What 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 is that feeling like? Um. You, sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you don't have a, a, a clue because you're so hypoxic. Uh, I've had one blackout in my life in on death and a couple in pool. And the pool actually helped me understand what that felt like because it's the only time that I really felt true hypoxia at my limits. Uh, I felt something weird in my legs, like a tingling kind of. And I had the same sensation in my dive when I blacked out. 
Um, but other than that, man, like watching it is easier to tell because you see some some signs of hypoxia, like the stroke is breaking, the lactic acid is building, the you know, like the you can watch it. You are so focused inwardly that sometimes you can't even tell that you're at your limit and you start, you know, we are, we operate at our limit for extended periods of time. So sometimes unless you have a very strong symptom, you can't tell you're there until you're there until you wake up and you're like, what? <laughs> so you said you blacked out one time. What was that experience? This was in a competition this year in uh, Asia and, uh, one of the Asia Cup, or I can't remember exactly which one it was, a free diving challenge. But it was a no-fins dive to a depth that I had done very easily last year. Um, and uh, it was equalization was easy to dive for great. And about 10 meters before the surface, I felt that same sensation I felt at the pool in my legs. And I was like, huh, this is weird. And then next thing I know, apparently I blacked out like five meters before the surface. And then I was just woke up, someone <laughs> blowing on my face. Um, the, but you don't remember much and it doesn't feel anything. And, you know, like you're suffering on the way up. So it's just like at some point lights go out. Um, this past year, I dealt with some health issues with my blood. I, I didn't know this and I have not, like one of the things that can happen if you overtrain is your, your hemoglobin your hematocrit and your red blood cells can drop to anemic levels. And I believe that's one of the reasons why the season didn't go as well. Uh, I took overtrained and trained for too long, too hard, too much. And I think that had a negative impact on my diving. Last year, it was amazing. This year, I wasn't even able to, I was very close. I was one meter shy of what I did last year in no fence. But the other disciplines, I, I couldn't get back to the to where it was. Uh, that anemia kind of kicked my ass, and I stayed sick. A vertical blue, I was sick for like a month, and yeah, it, it was tough. It was a challenging year after riding the high of the year before. This year was was different for sure. So it was almost like you you had so much great success in twenty two. And you're like, all right, I'm gonna pound this out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna train. I'm gonna even, I'm gonna use this training yeah. to go to a higher level. And it had almost the, the opposite thought. effect. Absolutely, man. This, wow. this is the funny thing. Yeah, you know, people talk about overtraining. Like, yeah, not gonna happen to me until it happens to you. So, so in, we're 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 our own worst enemies. And you know, you know, like we we can't stand to not do things. We don't feel like we're doing enough, and it's. This, you know, you know, this, bro, totally. And it's like you, I mean, I'm not comparing myself at all to you because you're like on the highest level there is, but it's like you, 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 you go, you go, and you're like, oh, I can just do this again next tomorrow. Like, like, I don't know, for me, the recovery, um, isn't as strong as the action. And, um, I, which leads me to my next question how how what is what are the training mechanisms because if, if from the sounds of it the the athletic racing is almost um another uh side to the coin to what you're doing it's like that's intense this is calming and do you do you train in a calming manner or do you train in an athletic style both um you know there's it's not sustainable to do free diving training year round. I mean, maybe some people do it, but not to the intensity that I was doing it. 
<laughs> like, uh, I mean, it's just exhausting, man. It's like, imagine if you were training for an Ironman and you never took a break. It feels like that. And some of the training are very, very demanding, man. Like you're, you're in the pain cave quite a bit. You're uncomfortable a lot. And they're very mentally, mentally tough to know that you have to do it again a day later or two days later. And so that, that's, that type of training is, is comparable to what we do for swimming. You know, you're, you're in a suffer hole, like you're, you're doing that. Then, you know, now like uh, the approach for free diving has become more of an athlete and a well-rounded approach before it was like a more like, ah, we just dive kind of like the surfers used to be, you know, we just go surfing and that's our training. And now they have like a uh, conditioning and, you know, the different training programs to, to maximize their output. And obviously that's the, the best way to do it. So we have a strength phase where we, you know, we're trying to build muscle. We're trying to mo mostly strength, not so much muscle, but, and then there's the component of the pool in the pool, you can get more repetition so you can get in the ocean for both hypoxia and CO2 uh, tolerance and also for stroke. Like uh, imagine if, you know, you do, if you do, even if it's just a 60, you do two 60 meter dives with no fins, that's it, bro. You're cooked. You're going home. You're going to sleep. But imagine how many repetitions, 60 meters underwater you can get if you're in the pool to fine tune your technique. So it's, it's extremely helpful to do that. And it depends on which aspect of freediving you're working, then the sensations and the approach is different. When we're doing depth sessions, even sometimes, and it depends what part of the cycle, it can be pretty miserable. We'll do tables where we're, instead of going in the pool this way, we're going that way. And there's short breathing intervals and, you know, it sucks and you get contractions and your EQ sucks and, and they're challenging, but there's other training sessions where the, the, the goal is to get a great feeling, to be relaxed, to, to master relaxation. And, and that's a completely different, you know, different, yeah, different sensation altogether. So you're in the off season now. What is your training regimen in the off season? Uh, uh, what are the goals? Is it is it maintaining fitness, or is it taking it to a, a different space of fitness? Well, I mean, it depends. This off season, man, I've been so busy this past few weeks with the with the house. I haven't had a chance to really do what I would like to do. And for me, is to get back in in like shape. Like we would go to tryouts a couple of months from now, kind of shape. And that's not possible at the moment, but that in, in, in the off season, that's sort of my mental break from freediving as well. So I like to, you know, get in good shape so that I'm a good swimmer, um, you know, strong enough. And then, uh, when I start getting serious about, um, the more specific training, then I'll start going more to the gym kind of maybe, I mean, it depends on where I am too, if I have access to a pool or not, maybe the swimming takes a little bit of a backseat, but still part of my life. And then now, since I'm going to be in Puerto Rico for the beginning of my training, I'll, I'll throw in some surfing and some fun stuff in there, but it'll be mostly gym and pool. Um, right now. Yeah. It's just to get back into where I feel good about my fitness level. When you're in the middle of competition season, you don't get to be a fit guy. You just, got to rest a lot. And I miss, you know, I miss being fit and feeling purposeful and feeling like I have a, a body that can do things I wanted to, you know? Absolutely. Uh, I want to take the conversation for a second to your experience on the Hollywood set. It, it, from my, um, 
my homework, you were like the man to teach all these guys how to to be underwater during uh, Black Panther. And and how how was it? Uh, what what was that experience like? Man, I, I'm so lucky to have gotten that to do that. It was, uh, I mean, for one, it was great pay. But aside from that, it was it was amazing, man. I, I got to hang out with some really interesting and cool people, and you know, I was I had to, you know, even though I'm a freediving instructor, we don't have enough time to teach freediving to these people. It's the you know the the talent basically has a, a a small task to get comfortable in a water tank that's only 15 foot deep, and they have so many other things that the the amount of time that they can give us is very limited. So even though I'm an instructor, I've been teaching forever, I had to adapt and change things. And a lot of the people that were in the water were, were people that were not comfortable in the water. And that presents, you know, a set of issues itself that were actually very rewarding to overcome. It was, uh, it was a very beautiful experience. People were terrified of the tank. They were terrified of the water. And then it became the, their break. And then they were asking to get more water training to come back for more in the, in the pool. And that was, that was very beautiful to see. And, and I got to be with, you know, with these people for, for six months more even, and taken from being terrified of the tank to being their own man, to being proper free divers. Like some of the scenes in there were challenging and to notch like the, 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 the main bad guy, he was like at the end of the production, he didn't need me for anything. I was just like, Tenoch, you know what to do. Just just go kill it. And he did, man. He was so comfortable in the water and, and just watching that whole journey and, and the confidence that built for him. And now he can he can do it whenever he wants. And, and it's pretty great. And, you know, you got to see some big actors and actresses and rub elbows with some Hollywood people and, you know, it's, it's an amazing experience, man. I don't know what else to say about it. I hope I get the chance to do it again. I think I did a, a well, a good job, and and they were pleased with it. Just now, it's tough to get, you know, with the strike going on and with all the traveling. It's it's not. I'm gonna have to give up one or the other. You know, I want to do it again, but if I do, I won't be able to be a competing in freediving. What do you say to people out there who are are inspired by by your story, what you do, and uh, but they might be like the Hollywood actors, afraid of of getting into the tank, getting into the pool, getting into deep water in general. Well, from my experience, and not just personal, but teaching free diving is uh, it's a mind opening thing. It's a it's a journey that builds confidence and. It's beautiful. It's like you don't know what you're capable of until you try it, and and it can help you overcome so many things in such a short period of time. It's beautiful. Don't be discouraged by being afraid of the water. We all were afraid of the water at one point. I remember almost shitting my pants the first time I saw a shark. You know, like those are things that you just get exposed to them, and it comes naturally. And and I will go as far as to say that, you know. Yes, I'm an I'm an, an elite free diver, but it's probably because not many people like you are free diving. If you quit your job and abandon your kids and and took three years of free diving, you'd probably be a hundred meter free diver too. Oh, bro! So uh, it's I'm, like 
yeah. <laughs> I'm not suggesting you do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, there's there's some myriad of, of normal people and even stud athletes that haven't tried it that have so much potential to to become incredible free divers. But at the recreational level, it's just you're missing out if you don't give it the opportunity. It, it can change your life. It changed mine. Maybe it won't have the same impact it had in my life, but I can tell you I've never had uh, a person that didn't enjoy the experience, whatever their whatever they accomplished in the in the class or not, or in their diving. Epic, epic commentary there. Uh, I want to. I have two two more questions. You've you've just totally crushed this this seminar here. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> dolphins, mammals, sea mammals. Uh, there's a there's a thought that that dolphins went from um, the sea to the land and then back to the sea again. And you you spend a lot of time underwater. You you know how to how to be underwater. What is your your thought your commentary on sea mammals and and humans in in well, that capacity? And you know this might go into things that are beyond my scope of knowledge. I know that we tap into what we call the mammalian dive reflex, and that's all based on what you talked about. That we evolved from mammalian, um, uh, sorry, aquatic mammalians, and that's why we have that reflex still within us. Uh, physiologically, the changes that happen during a free dive are very similar to the ones that dolphins, seals, and all marine mammals experience when they're diving. And the theory is that we evolved directly from them, and that's why we still have that reflex within us. Or um, so, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I can't tell you definitively that that is the case, but it's what we've been saying and talking about in all our courses that we evolved from mammals, and that that's what we're capable. And when we have these mechanisms that allow us to dive, that's what we can subject our bodies to these pressures. That's what we can hold our breath for that long. That's what we have, like all these physiological changes that happen very rapidly throughout a dive that we didn't, we wouldn't know that it were possible unless we were diving. You know, we have brachycardia, we have blood shunting, we have uh, uh, vasoconstriction and vasodilation. We have the spleen releases, additional red blood cells, like all these, the, you know, the, there's fluid in the lungs to compensate from preventing the lungs from collapsing. Like, all these mechanisms that we have that allow us to dive, I like to think that they come from marine mammals. You have a story or a, 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 a particular incidence where, where you've encountered um, a, a dolphin on a dive or a sea mammal as such? Yeah, man, I've had some experiences with both uh, with whales, pilot whales um, and dolphins. It is my girlfriend, Siri has traveled the world and, and as well, she's a free diver and she's swam with orcas. And actually that's one of the things that I would like to spend more time doing is interacting with marine mammals. I would love to swim with uh, humpbacks and I mean, you can even do blue whales, um, sperm whales, but uh, you know, it's, it's quite a commitment, both financially travel wise and time wise, but it's, it's definitely something that I want to spend more time doing. Uh, they're incredible, smart, intelligent, sensitive creatures, and it's so beautiful to be with them, you know? 
we need to get you a water camera to do this and that will uh that'll make it all happen yeah <laughs> I, I feel well uh alex before i let you go i would like to um this is my final question what is the meaning of life from your perspective to enjoy man to be kind and enjoy um I don't want to get too philosophical, but those are things that I think are essential for for us as humans to to find a passion and something that brings you joy, and to always try to not do harm and be kind to others. And if we all did that, I think the world would be a better place. Awesome, awesome, Alex. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Uh, the amount of wisdom you've you've dropped on us was was just incredible. Uh, this has been episode. 22 speaking from water with alex lines and um buddy i i wish uh we we can spend more time together in the future uh man we have to we absolutely have to sean it was my pleasure man i really enjoyed the conversation um the main crush goes both ways dude you're a stud you're a savage uh everything you do man i, I much appreciate and follow um man i'll see you out there and let's get training and diving together Let's go, dude. Respect to the highest level. And um, I'll see you soon. See you, brother. Later, Bye. bro.